Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Financial mismanagement at BC Housing. One of the most troubling aspects uh, are the lengths uh, that were taken to conceal uh, some of these activities. The faults and failures revealed by a forensic audit and why Atira is being singled out. Trouble for a teacher's assistant. I believe a student came across a TikTok where I was only wearing a bikini. The content creator fighting back after being punished for what she shares outside the classroom. And an emotional reunion of river rescue heroes. Thanks for helping me, man. How they pulled a victim from a submerged vehicle. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. The long-awaited forensic audit of BC Housing is out with some bombshell revelations about financial mismanagement and conflict of interest, among other failures. The report focused on the relationship between the Crown Agency and its biggest contractor, Atira, and its handling of funding worth tens of millions of dollars. Richard Zussman has the details. It's being described as not just a conflict of interest, but a severe breach of public trust. There is a very serious issue here uh, that, uh, that we are dealing with. The provincial government releasing a forensic audit Monday, determining former BC Housing CEO Shane Ramsey and current Atira CEO Janice Abbott were in conflict. Quote, we have significant concerns regarding the manner in which BC Housing manages its financial relationship with Atira. Overall, we question the rigor with which public funds are being dispersed by BC Housing. It's clear from the investigation that Terra did not follow guidelines and used inappropriate channels to obtain operating and operator funding. Ramsey and Abbott have been a couple since 2010. Atira is BC Housing's largest housing provider. Texts were found showing Ramsey ordering contracts go to Atira. Meeting minutes deleted, critical of the company. And Atira utilized $2 million of restricted funds, repayable to BC Housing, and without BC Housing's authorization, to purchase a property at 303 Columbia, the province now promising greater oversight. There's a real openness and a desire to ensure that uh, any time a, a dollar, taxpayer dollar, is going out, that there be that accountability. Abbott is still on the job, although not at the office on Monday and not responding to any requests for interviews. BC Housing in the province now will review all of Atira's financial transactions and new funding will be restricted until the review is done. The province is now starting a physical inspection of all Atira buildings. We expect steps to be taken to ensure uh, public confidence in what's happening there. Uh, uh, one of those uh, could be uh, appropriately leadership change. BC United says the government should have cut off the money BC Housing was sending to Atira. Instead, over the last few years, that funding has more than doubled. Majority of this unbelievable gross mismanagement happened while David Eby was housing minister, was directly responsible uh, for BC Housing. Ramsey retired last year and subsequently the BC Housing Board was fired. 
Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, we're going to bring in Keith Baldry for a little more on this. Keith, the premier today clarified for the first time why he fired the B.C. Housing mm -hmm. Board last summer and, and how that all unfolded. Yeah, a bit of a mystery associated with that firing. Out of the blue, last summer, that board was terminated and replaced by former civil servants from a previous government and the current government. But it was never really explained what exactly happened. The assumption had been that the board was not following uh, what David Eby and the NDP government wanted to see when it came to housing. That wasn't the case. David Eby re revealing today essentially fired because they wouldn't fire Shane Ramsey. And also, he says, major decisions and some heavy lifting required going forward. And the people there weren't really paid, being paid a lot of money. It was going to be some difficult decisions to be made. We didn't know that back July, but we do know it today. Here's the Premier. Uh, impression on receiving that information uh, that two things uh, needed to happen. One is there needed to be an urgent response related to the then CEO at BC Housing, Shane Ramsey. He needed to be either placed on leave or fired. Uh, and that there was some very heavy lifting ahead, uh, regardless uh, in terms of the first report uh, as well as uh, uh, what looked very likely to be a forensic investigation. Uh, so we needed a board at BC Housing um, that would be in place, able to do that heavy lifting. So again, that new board is made up of retired civil servants. Also, a new CEO was appointed for BC Housing last week. So changes are already underway. And as Richard pointed out in his story, there's still a number of reviews still have to take place. This is not going to go away anytime soon. More revelations may be coming. Thanks very much, Keith. All right, and while the audit found numerous serious flaws in the way BC Housing and Atira were doing business, those two organizations are both still fully engaged with their core mission, providing housing for those most in need. Much of that housing is in the form of single-room occupancy hotels, SROs as we call them. But as Imadagahi shows us, experts say the SRO model is profoundly broken. At the corner of Cordova and Columbia Streets in the downtown east side, those residents in SRO buildings like Wayne Furlong will be quick to tell you how they feel about the conditions they are living under. Kitty jokes over there. Like, you know, what I can see what it can control the drugs. It starts with the management and uh, the government bad. All the money that's needed, the, the resources have already filtered off to the, the staff and then they're... It's corruption as it goes from the bottom to the top, it gets rampant. According to SFU professor Dr. Julian Somers, an outspoken opponent of the congregate housing for those experiencing homelessness, BC's SRO model is in need of a complete overhaul. This is now really well established through evidence. People living all together in an SRO have no different levels of ongoing criminal justice involvement or ongoing medical emergencies than people who remain homeless. Sommer says unhoused people are almost always experiencing mental illness and lack of social supports and need community-based settings dispersed throughout the province. What people need help with is joining intact, healthy communities of people. If we have 2,000 homeless people that we're all trying to support, the worst thing we could do is build a building for 2,000 people. We need to find 2,000 places for them already among our intact communities. Adding the current SRO model has failed the most vulnerable people it was supposed to help. We're in this plight in BC, um, not because we're not spending enough money, 
but because of how we're spending it. Emad Agahi, Global News. A young person has pleaded guilty in the death of 14-year-old Carson Cremeni back in August of 2019. Cremeni, you might remember, was at Langley's Walnut Grove Skate Park with a group of older teens when he went into medical distress, appearing to be suffering a drug overdose. None of the teens called for medical help, and they were seen laughing and posting video of an obviously extremely intoxicated Cremeni to social media. He was found by a family member, but died later in hospital. I mean, there's not really any relief or closure to be really spoken of, but it is, it is um, comforting to know that um, he's at least guilty of the crime. He did do the pretrial, and from the evidence that was presented at the pretrial, it was um, concluded that all the drugs that were given to Carson were given to him by the one boy. The youth who pleaded guilty to manslaughter can't be named because he was a minor at the time of the incident. The trial of Ibrahim Ali continued today with a friend of the young murder victim being cross-examined for the second day by defense. And a warning, some of the details are disturbing. Ali's counsel raising questions about how well the two girls knew each other. As Ramina Dea explains, two different images of the young teen victim are emerging. Defense counsel once again attempting to erode the witness's credibility and questioning how well did she really know her school friend of roughly 11 months. Kevin McCullough essentially accusing the witness of lying. I say the witness isn't being truthful. I'm building on the ridiculousness of the lie, said McCullough. Defense asking the witness again if she knew her friend had a boyfriend, broke up with him and started dating another boy. The witness told the jury she didn't know her friend had a boyfriend. Last week, she testified her friend wasn't interested in boys. McCullough asking the witness if she knew her friend was depressed. The witness said no. Then why did you tell the police your last words to her were what's wrong, said McCullough. The witness said it was just a greeting. Her English was problematic. Two very different pictures of the victim emerging in court. One of an innocent young girl who liked math, cartoons, and going to the library and park. The other of a troubled teen who didn't want to go home, who had slept in the park. The witness telling police her friend tried to kill herself because her parents were divorcing, said defense last week. The teen's body was discovered in Burnaby Central Park almost six years ago. Crown has told the jury the accused, Ibrahim Ali, strangled the girl to death in the course of sexually assaulting her. Crown says Ali's DNA was found inside the team, adding they were strangers to each other. Ali has told the jury he did not kill the team. He has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. A new witness will take the stand Tuesday morning. The trial is expected to last until the end of June. Ramina Dea, Global News. The Fraser Valley Transit strike is entering week seven and commuters are feeling the pinch financially. Students at the University of the Fraser Valley have been spending hundreds of dollars to get to campus without bus service. And with no end in sight, the union is calling on the provincial government to step in. Janet Brown reports. We pay a lot for the Ubers. Usually it used to be 100 bucks for me for a semester. So now I pay 
800 bucks just in a couple days. For University of the Fraser Valley students, getting to campus has become a lot more difficult. Seven weeks without any buses. It is pretty valid that they are on strike, but being a student, like, I haven't been able to go out of my house since, like, the transit strike happened. But there was some help. Students impacted by the strike could apply for emergency funding, up to a total of $750 from the university. So we provided access to our student emergency fund, uh, which then provided them funding to offset those costs. As of this morning, we've had 92 dispersals for just over $50,000. BC Transit contracts out public transit services to First Transit in the Fraser Valley. Unionized bus drivers say they're happy to go back to work, but their employer hasn't reached out to negotiate. They're looking for a 32% wage increase to bring them in line with Metro Vancouver bus drivers, as well as a pension plan. BC Transit should be getting involved. Uh, they are the government body that has to supply public transit to the region or to the area, to the Fraser Valley. And uh, their contractor that they hired are not doing their job uh, because they're not willing to pay fair wages for our members. The provincial government for now is leaving it up to both sides to hopefully reach an agreement. I have uh, reached out to the parties, reminded them the urgency, urgency of a meeting so that they can get to the bargaining table and also reminding their responsibility to the public that they provide service to. Despite reaching out, we did not hear back from the company before our deadline. Janet Brown, Global News. A warning about our next story. Some of the content might not be suitable for younger viewers. A BC teaching assistant is embroiled in a battle with her school district over social media posts that highlight her sexuality. Krista Dow reports. I have a concern regarding your activities as Ava James. A cease and desist letter warning Kristen McDonald to shut down her social media pages. I'm so pretty and he liked that. On April 28th, the teaching assistant was notified of a student complaint about her racy internet profile under the alias of Ava James. The Coquitlam School District says she violated her collective agreement and warned she could be fired. Obviously, this is a controversial topic. I took precautions um, in order to keep OnlyFans and my education job separate. McDonald, who's a single mother, says she started her OnlyFans last year to supplement her income. She says her part-time job as a teaching assistant at a Tri-Cities High School isn't enough to support her and her child, arguing her personal life outside the classroom is private. I do believe that I should be able to continue on. Um, I'm not hurting anyone. OnlyFans is an online content service that requires a paid subscription. It can include pornographic materials. One labor lawyer says the issue is complex, but employees are entitled to some privacy when they're off the job. And it's not unreasonable for education assistants to seek other forms of income. The argument to be made for this employee is this is private, this is something she's doing in her own time. I think it is an important distinction that this is on a subscription-based web service that minors do not have access to. In a statement, School District 43 says as a matter of course, it will not provide information regarding any individual. Meantime, McDonald says she's working with her union about her rights. I also don't believe that they can tell me what I can do with my body. We really 
you know, drive into our students the narrative of my body, my choice. She remains defiant about keeping her online profiles and says she won't be taking them down. Krista Dow, Global News. The failed investigation into a fatal house fire. I feel my, uh, my family's life is not really important. Five years later, a man still desperate for answers after a tragedy that took his loved ones. That's next on the News Hour. said to my wife, I go, I think somebody's gone over in the river. Heroes in the right place at the right time, coming up a little later on the News Hour. And no luck for the Canucks in the NHL draft lottery, where hockey phenom Connor Bedard will be playing instead, coming up later in sports. Right now, though, a North Vancouver family is still reeling after a fatal fire that killed two loved ones. A beloved mother and son couldn't be rescued. And moving on is even more agonizing, knowing the reason for the fire will likely never be known. Negar Mojtahedi shows us why. It was around 2 o'clock in the morning. I woke up. Fire was so strong. Fire was all around the building. They were suffocated by smoke. Photos on the mantle of Hossein Khushkai Delshad's home honor his wife, Nargis Kasnajad, and their eight-year-old son, Seper, who died in a 2018 apartment fire at the Mountain Village Garden Apartments in Lynn Valley while the family was sleeping. And they found each other. They were kind of hugging each other, almost under the bed. Delshad and his eldest son, Sohail, survived. I wish I was in their place. I wish they got out instead of me. Because my family need, need my mom and my brother more than they, than they need me. Delshad was seriously burned trying to save his family. I did what I could. And I didn't succeed. The grief is made worse not knowing what actually caused the fire. Left with no answers. RCMP didn't give us any solid result. I mean, in a car accident, people don't close a close case like that. The file closed after two years of both fire and police investigating. This was a very tragic incident. Uh, our hearts go out to Mr. Delshot's family. North Vancouver RCMP say it was one of their most comprehensive investigations, but the cause remains undetermined. Meaning that um, there was nothing to indicate this was a, an arson, this was an intentional act, um, or there, and, and not, anything indicated this was, there was any criminality involved. It's also not known if this was accidental. Delshad still lives in the same building where it happened, with the unsettling feeling, will it happen again? These thoughts haunt him as he feels like there's no justice for his wife and little boy. No closure. It's a guilt every day when I wake up. And that guilt is, I'm alive, and they're not. Negar Moshehedi, Global News. It's been a nerve-wracking weekend for thousands of Alberta homeowners, many forced to flee from out-of-control wildfires and still on evacuation alert. Others have been allowed to return but are coming home to devastation. Global's Carolyn Curry de Castillo has the latest. 
It's unprecedented. More than 100 wildfires are raging in northern and central Alberta, forcing more than 29,000 people to flee. Some of those living in the town of Edson, about 200 kilometers west of Edmonton, were allowed to return home after an exhausting weekend. Just relieved that uh, everybody's okay and they've opened the town back up and we can head home. 25 homes in Yellowhead County were lost. Homeowners are still trying to comprehend the aftermath. We tried to save the farm. Uh, we, we had a water truck, so we tried to uh, basically put lots of water around it, but I guess the wind picked up and we just actually couldn't do much about it. On the Little Red River Cree Nation in northern Alberta, more than 40 structures, mostly homes, have been lost. It's going to be a tough one in uh, this afternoon when, once we tally up everything. The city of Calgary is opening a reception centre for evacuees across the province. Those who have been evacuated as part of the Alberta wildfires can come down to Stampede Park. Accommodations will be provided through hotels in Calgary or through general lodging at Stampede Park. Alberta has sent a letter to the federal government that outlines a request for assistance. Ottawa will be offering support and will work with the Red Cross to set up a matching fund to help Albertans affected by the fires. At this moment, Albertans, including Indigenous communities living in northern and central Alberta, are facing a critical threat. Some gains were made on Sunday as scattered showers fell across the province. Firefighters now hope that cooler temperatures and higher humidity will help. Carolyn Curry, De Castillo, Global News. Still ahead on the News Hour, a survivor's story. But there was always that little belief in there. A new memoir sharing the brutal truth of what it took to make it through residential school. And call it e-cycling. YBC does better than most when it comes to recycling electronics. Canada is grappling with the injustice and inhumanity of Canada's residential schools. And a new book recounts the personal nightmare and recovery of one of the people forced to attend. Global's Elizabeth McSheffrey spoke to Squamish elder Sam George about his struggle and his survival. This is Mother Michaela, this is Sister Germaine. I don't remember these other three nuns, though. They're the memories of a young boy marred by trauma. I think everybody in that first row is gone. You know, and I guess that's what happens when you get older. The passage of time makes the recollections of residential school survivor Sam George so critical, a living record of the human rights abuses that for generations Canada tried to cover up. Everything I did, we got beat into us or we got punished. At age 77, the Squamish elder is one of the last survivors of St. Paul's Indian Residential School, which ran in North Vancouver from 1899 to 1959. From the ages of 7 to 14, George says his time at the school was more like a sentence. I rode home and I liked it in jail because it was better than residential school. I was already institutionalized. From a prison-like school to actual incarceration, from the shipyards to the sweat lodge, George's incredible life story is now documented in a new memoir, The Fire Still Burns. They tried to extinguish me, all of us. And... Um, and but you know there was always that little belief in there that I belonged although I tried to walk away from it the fire is still in there the flame the book now a burning act of reconciliation itself co-authored by a Langara college professor and three students whose writing class focuses on indigenous literature I found that it really aligned with like the truth and reconciliations um, like calls to action 
I want to be a counselor is my goal. So to learn more about the community that I'm going to be serving um, means a lot to me. A testament to what can be achieved through meaningful partnerships. And anytime you build a relationship, if you build it the right way, you're accountable to it. You feel a desire to seek justice for the people that you're in a relationship with. Paving the way for similar collaborations in the future. George says he hopes his memoir will heal and inspire other survivors. I remember my first day of residential school vividly. The Fire Still Burns launches in North Vancouver next month. The memories of a boy, a call to action that hopefully spread like wildfire. Elizabeth McSheffrey, Global News. And as always, we understand these stories can be triggering and there is help available for residential school survivors and their families. It's available 24-7 at the number on your screen. That's 1-800-721-0066. Coming up, Canada's problem with electronic waste. A new study shows the shocking amount we discard every year and how it skyrocketed in the past couple of decades. Also, the health-related recall that could impact anyone with severe allergies. Lawyers employed by the B.C. government took the unusual step of marching on the legislature, protesting new rules they say will prevent them from unionizing. They're upset about the government's recently tabled Bill 5. The lawyers say while it will allow them to join the Professional Employees Association, it prevents them from forming their own union. The B.C. Government Lawyers Association represents about 300 lawyers, 70% of whom have voted in favor of unionizing. So Bill 5 does two things. Bill 5 says that the employer gets to pick what union you're in. And Bill 5 says one of the, one of the players in the game gets to change the rules right in the middle. And we say no to that. No. No. Government lawyers aid in the drafting of provincial laws and regulations. They provide the government with legal advice and represent the province in court when necessary. A new study out of the University of Waterloo might make you think twice about how you dispose of unwanted electronics. The findings indicate Canada needs to do a much better job of managing its electronic waste. As Travis Prasad reports, electronic waste more than tripled in the last two decades, and it's going to keep increasing. When you're finished, not just with your call, but your cell phone as well, what do you do with it? It seems more of us are throwing unwanted electronics in the trash. The amount of electronic waste over the last 20 years has tripled in Canada. According to a new study from the University of Waterloo, the average Canadian generated 8.3 kilograms of e-waste in the year 2000. In 2020, it jumped to 25.3 kilograms. By 2030, researchers say the average person will create 31.5 kilograms of e-waste every year. More and more modern gadgets and like phones and tablets and this and that has been coming on the market. That is definitely that creates a push to buy more. Lead researcher Komal Habib says when electronics go to the landfill, they take valuable components with them that could have been salvaged to help ease supply chain disruptions. And the good news is that BC is well ahead of the other.
is in this. The Electronic Products Recycling Association says unlike some other provinces, BC's recycling programs go beyond the well-known items like TVs and laptops. A big portion of this waste is made up of white goods and small appliances and toys and things that you don't that don't immediately come to mind when you think of electronics. Simply put, Wisehart says if it has a battery or a power cord, it's recyclable in BC. You're all set. One way to keep broken electronics from going to waste is to fix them. However, the products today are not designed to for an easy repair. So they don't want you to fix them. Parts are very expensive. The feds have plans for so-called right-to-repair regulations to force manufacturers to provide longer warranties and better access to affordable replacement parts. But for e-waste levels to drop, advocates say consumers need the will to recycle. Finding ways to encourage them and and incentivize them to bring that material back and make sure that, uh, that it gets back into a, a proper re- recycling or reuse channel. Travis Prasad, Global News. The province made a big announcement this morning, investing nearly $75 million over three years to provide more tech-relevant learning for post-secondary education. With the funding, the B.C. government says 3,000 more tech-relevant spaces will become available in post-secondary institutions. Spaces will include cybersecurity, data science, life sciences, and agritech, among others. The province says this will accelerate training and skills to address the growing need for tech jobs. More people can train for the good jobs of today and tomorrow, as well as a clean, innovative economy of the future. Whatever tech there is in the future, we want people trained here in British Columbia so they can participate and push the envelope. The B.C. government says in the next decade, it's estimated there will be close to 120,000 job openings in STEM-related fields in our province. In Health Matters now, a warning from Health Canada tonight. Emiraid epinephrine auto-injectors are being recalled because the devices could fail just when you need them most. Health Canada says the affected devices have been sold since April of 2022. According to the agency, the 0.3 to 0.5 milligram injectors could malfunction when people suffering a serious allergic reaction try to use them. A malfunction could mean you may not get enough of the epinephrine needed to stop potentially deadly anaphylaxis. The federal agency is urging people who own these injectors to return them right away to their local pharmacy. Health Canada says you should still use them if you have a medical emergency before you can get a new device. Still to come, diving right into the river rescue. I didn't realize how cold the water was. Yeah. And yeah, you still had your boots and your pants. And yeah. Heroes, describe what it was like being first on the scene when a vehicle ended up in deep trouble. And still ahead in sports, draft king. What's next for Connor Bedard, the world's number one hockey prospect? BC's big news. The 2023 Canadian Screen Awards have named Global News Hour at 6 the country's best local newscast. Thank you, BC, for making Global News Hour at 6 your choice for news. While the risk of flooding is receding in the southern interior, conditions could deteriorate later this week, increasing once again the risk of flooding and wildfires. 50 people remain under an evacuation order this afternoon, while more than 2,000 British Columbians are still on alert because of flooding. Rainfall was not quite as severe as it could have been over the weekend, 
And two of the most affected communities, Cache Creek and Grand Forks, will see their rivers stabilize. But conditions haven't fully resolved. Temperatures are expected to jump significantly by the end of the week, accelerating snowmelt and possibly increasing flood and wildfire risk again. What we'll see over the course of the next five to seven days is that we're going to see that hazard really trend throughout the province and, and the potential for wildfire starts uh, is going to increase from really being in the northeast and, and it will be widespread across the province. We're always monitoring and assessing our resources and, and the needs that uh, that British Columbians need to, in order to be safe in, in case of emergency. At this time, we are feeling pretty comfortable uh, about where our capacity is. In fact, that is why we felt comfortable sending a, um, a team uh, from the BC Wildfire Service over to support Alberta with their wildfires. There are three wildfires of note burning in northern B.C. right now. The Tear Creek Fire being held at 1,100 hectares. The Boundary Lake and Red Creek wildfires, though, continue to burn out of control. And with strong winds in the mix, crews are expected both of those to grow. Several properties remain under evacuation alert or order as a result. And we'll bring in Christy Gordon right now with the latest on that heat up that's going to happen later this week. Christy? All right. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. I mean, this is wonderful for so many people as we head into Mother's Day weekend, but big concern. Here's a look at the stretch of weather that we could see. It's not only that we're going to see temperatures, you know, a good 10 degrees above seasonal, but it's the fact that we're going to see potentially five to seven days of this weather. Here's a quick look at the Metro Vancouver uh, daytime highs that we could see as we head throughout the weekend. So a couple things with this is that it is expected to increase the snow melt. We still have uh, almost all the snow in through the higher elevation of the of the mountain peaks and so significant melt will start to accelerate as well as the fact that it will increase that fire risk so now's a good time to start preparing for a couple of things for sure that grab and go bag that we've been talking about for days but also as we head into the heat this is just the start of the summer season start to prepare yourself for how do I cool my home how do I cool uh, do I increase the shrubs around my house to be able to increase the amount of uh, uh, shade that I have quick update on the flood advisory so you can see a lot of yellow that's just high stream flow advisories the Cache Creek is still at a, a flood warning level but it has stabilized and then we're also just watching the middle Fraser sort of Quinell River River area and then the Salmon River area under a flood watch. But overall conditions are going to recede over the next couple of days. There was concern about lightning strikes today, but look at it. It was mostly off in Alberta. Thankfully, in those southern areas of Alberta, the fire danger rating was lower. It's really just the northern regions that it's high. Here's a look at the showers that we're going to see overnight. That includes our region, a few showers, and then pop-up showers and thunderstorms again tomorrow. In fact, we'll see those showers and thunderstorms again, not only Tuesday afternoon but Wednesday afternoon also so it's sort of after Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday that we're really going to see that surge in heat we've got a couple more days of unsettled weather there is some concern with those lightning strikes certainly so 17 for our day tomorrow and then we're reaching potentially 25 degrees uh, near the water and close to 30 degrees away from the water over the weekend tonight central windows weather window Chris is coming to you from McBride this was taken on Friday and Mandy said that this was pretty scary this was her hometown and you could see the fires there but in addition to that the northern lights above An just incredible amazing photo. that really is a amazingly beautiful devastating photo thanks very much for that christy here is squire now big news in the nhl everybody watching the draft lottery today squire hey guess what the canucks didn't win it 
What a shock. Gee, what a shock, yes. <laughs> Although we didn't really expect it, they had the, well, the worst chance of getting Bedard amongst the teams who could get him. They only had a 3% chance. Vancouver will pick 11th overall. It's Chicago that won the draft lottery. So Connor Bedard, even though the draft's not till June 28th, is a Blackhawk. Wow. Also coming up. The stars aligned, didn't they? Right place, right time. Yeah. What it took to save a life when a car crashed into the water from one of the heroes who helped. All right, the Connor Bedard sweepstakes did not come to Vancouver. Well, and, uh, well, I guess you shouldn't have won all those games down the stretch. You might have had a better chance. <laughs> we all know that story, don't we? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Connor Bedard will be a Chicago Blackhawks. And in many ways, this is perfect for the Hawks because this is the year they traded away Patrick Kane. They told Jonathan Taves, thanks, but you're not coming back next season. So starting now, you can safely say Connor Bedard is the Chicago Blackhawks leader. It is his team now. And Chicago will not have much around him to start with. They have a rather weak-looking roster, but they do have a foundation. There's no doubt that Bedard will start the year in Chicago, and the Blackhawks do have a lot of cap space. They also have six draft picks in the first two rounds this year. So their future, with Bedard leading the way, just became a whole lot brighter. Now, the only change was at the top of the lottery. Chicago went from third to first. Ducks dropped to second. Blue Jackets dropped to third. Everybody else stayed the same, which means the Canucks will pick 11th overall, which is a spot they've only picked once from in their history. That was 1982 when they took average defenseman, Michel Petit. Had a decent NHL career, though. The uh, Canucks losing the lottery is nothing new. We've never won it. We've never picked first overall. The Canucks also lost... $50,000 today. They got fined by the NHL for holding an on-ice training session after the season ended. You can't do that with team officials in the offseason. Apparently the Sedins were out working with six players. Anyway, that aside, I think they can afford it. As we said, it's 11th overall for Vancouver. If Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford want to make a choice there, there is certainly a chance the Canucks could move the pick, maybe package it with a veteran to relieve some salary cap pressure or trade it for a younger player who can help right away. As you'd expect, Patrick Alvin is not going to tell us what his final decision is yet. He's meeting with scouts this week. And, of course, the draft isn't until June 28th and 29th. Well, as as we said before, we are always uh, open to see how to improve our team. Uh, We definitely uh, are excited. we got the scouts in town here and and, uh, going through the amateur meetings and and, uh, we're definitely excited about uh, having a first round pick and and, uh, sure looks like uh, uh, some good players uh, around 11 there. Now last year the Canucks had 15th overall in the first round and they took Swedish forward Jonathan LeCaramacki who had some injury issues but did have a very good postseason. His ETA for Vancouver isn't known yet. Only four of the players taken ahead of him last year played in the NHL this season, and they didn't play all that much. So you can safely assume, I mean, 2024 maybe, but 2025 is the likeliest time for him to be a contender for a job in Vancouver, provided, of course, his game keeps improving. Come 
Five goals, 10 assists, and 15 playoff games over in Sweden by Jonathan Leckermacki is the kind of production the Vancouver Canucks hope to see one day here in Vancouver. But Canuck fans are going to have to wait a bit as Leckermacki is spending at least another year in Sweden before hopefully making the big jump to the NHL. Uh, maybe, maybe two years, maybe one year. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I think they have to get bigger and better. So we will see. Lekker Mackey had a tough go of it in the regular season where he dealt with injury after injury playing in Sweden's second division. At one point when he was struggling, he was demoted back down to junior to help him find his game. I think to just go out and play, don't think so much. I think I was thinking too much in the beginning of the season and the playoffs just go with the flow and just play. Of course, I want to be faster. Maybe the first three steps. So I think I have a good good skating, but uh, of course it can be better. Vancouver Canucks are proud to select. Last year the Canucks used the 15th overall pick in the entry draft to select Lecker Mackey. He doesn't turn 19 until July, so if you're worried at all about whether or not this first round pick is going to pan out, let's give it some time. Former Canuck forward Michael Samuelson's worked with him on being stronger on the puck. Same for getting quicker with his foot speed. We'll see how it all looks come training camp in September. And then maybe one day he'll be skating alongside his fellow countryman, Elias Pettersson. You know, maybe, you know, a year or two, you know, from now you might be playing on a line with him. Yeah, uh, it would be unbelievable. So I hope so. Okay, so last night, Denver Nuggets star Nikola Jokic had a moment with Phoenix Suns owner Matt Ishbia while trying to get the ball back. Ishbia had it. Jokic took it and then gave him a little elbow grease. Uh, Jokic got a $25,000 fine. He won't be suspended, and Ishbia is glad of that. He said afterwards he's got a lot of respect for Jokic. There should not be any discipline from what happened. The uh, series is tied 2-2. A little elbow action there. Eh? <laughs> Just give me the ball. I don't so care if you're a team owner or a billionaire. Just give me the ball. i got a game to play here. All right. Thanks very much, Squire. Next, heroes who dove right in to help. Jordan Armstrong and the late crew working hard tonight and here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan. Thanks, Chris. The province is closing Highway 99 overnight as a precaution between Pemberton and Lillooet due to the potential for landslides. You'll recall a slide killed five people on that stretch during the atmospheric river of November 2021. Also tonight, will there be a goose call in Vancouver? The park board is meeting this hour and that's one option to control the population. The decision, hopefully, on Global News at 11. Chris. See a lot of them around. Thanks very much. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Thanks, Jordan. All right, even they admit they were in the right place at the right time. An off-duty Burnaby firefighter and an RCMP officer were on the scene seconds after an SUV went off the road and plunged into the Nicomeco River. Grace Key shows us how they both dove in without hesitation to save a life. See ya. How you doing? Ah, thanks for helping me, Matt. Hey, help each other. <laughs> An emotional reunion for Surrey RCMP Constable Steve Dalton and Burnaby firefighter Paul Rushton. They dove into the Nekomekel River on 152nd Street after an SUV plunged into the water. And then, because I saw you from shore trying to do CPR, but I could tell it was difficult because he's still 
He was half in the car. Yeah. Okay. They're looking at rescue video from Sunday afternoon. Rushton was off duty when he came upon the accident and dove into the cold, fast-moving river. He could see the driver's face through the open sunroof and a female passenger trying to keep his head above water. I started doing chest compressions through the sunroof because that's all I could get him out. I, I needed help. And... I, then I turned around and I think there was a lifeguard lady that was there. A female lifeguard in the yellow top was a second on scene. She dove in and was able to care for the passenger who had a head injury. Constable Dalton arrived next and jumped in too. Both struggled to untangle the driver. I was trying to pull and I was trying to pull. And then I finally reached into the sunroof and I saw that his seatbelt was kind of tangled around him. Uh, so we finally untangled him, and I think that's probably when we got the seatbelt off of him, and the two of us pulled him up onto the top of the car, and then we assessed him and uh, started working on him right there. Two Surrey firefighters dove in to assist, and a rescue boat was brought in. Both men balk at being called heroes and credit teamwork for saving the man. I'm just happy. I'm happy that he lived. Um and that everyone was there to help. Um, it's the most important part of working as a team. The driver may have been in medical distress when he hit another car and ended up in the river. He's in stable condition in hospital. The passenger was treated and released. The stars aligned, didn't they? Right place, right time. Yeah. Grace Key, Global News. All right, really hoping the driver pulls through there for sure. Great work. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, last word on weather before we go, Christy. Hard to believe we're talking about potential for 30 degree weather come the end uh, or come the weekend. But it's great for a lot of people I know and in the, want the heat, but comes with a bit of concern. I, I honestly start to think about, you know, how am I going to cool myself as we head into the summer months? Yeah. This is just the start of it. I've still Get got the umbrellas out. Yeah, I got I've still got the AC unit from last summer out in the garage. And I, I'm thinking maybe it's time to start planning, bringing it in. Thanks crazy for the warning. To think of it yeah. This year. It's crazy. Yeah, early start for sure. Thanks very much for watching everyone. We'll see you back here tomorrow.